So, Steve, what's your next case? Okay. The next case is a 50-year-old woman who presented in 2005, four years ago, with some right pelvic pain and ultimately saw an orthopedist who did x-rays and saw a lytic lesion in the posterior iliac area on the right side. She had actually had a breast exam and thought she felt something in the right breast several months before, had seen a surgeon, and it was not felt that there was any significant abnormality in the breast. I met her when the orthopedist referred her for this lytic lesion, and in fact, on my initial examination, I palpated a right breast mass as well as right axillary adenopathy. The mass was not large. It was perhaps about two centimeters. And this was April 2005. She had both a core biopsy of the breast lesion, and I elected to do a bone marrow to diagnose what appeared to be metastatic disease in the bone and made a pathologic diagnosis of adenocarcinoma consistent with breast cancer. Now, did she have an abnormal peripheral smear? Or? She did not at that time. We'll get to an abnormal peripheral smear that came later, but she was not anemic, realizing the area was virtually in the posterior iliac area where I would do a bone marrow. So the lesion itself was there? The lesion itself was there or close to it, so hmm. I felt that I had a reasonable chance and that if we needed to, we could do a CT-guided biopsy of the area. Hmm. The tumor was an infiltrating ductal carcinoma, strongly ERPR positive, and HER2 non-amplified. The staging workup included scans and a PET scan, and the disease at that time was extensive bony disease with no other major lytic areas, but there was skeletal metastasis throughout the bony skeleton. She was premenopausal at the time. She was 45 years old and was treated with ovarian ablation and an AI at the time, letrozole. She had an excellent response. One could monitor her disease both by tumor markers, CA2729, and ultimately by a PET scan. And I believe there was at least one PET scan that was totally normalized on that treatment. She remained on that therapy for a little over two years. For a brief period of time, when she had evidence of progression in bone, she was switched to another AI, to a steroidal AI, exemestane and then was begun on chemotherapy at that time with capecitabine based on PET scan evidence of disease progression and increase in pain. On the capecitabine, within maybe two months, if not even shorter, her disease rapidly progressed. She developed hepatic metastases. It's at that point that she became significantly anemic and had evidence of a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, no evidence of DIC. Peripheral smear showed clear-cut fragmentation. Haptoglobin was low. Retic count was elevated. And as I said, the scans at that time showed the development of significant hepatic disease. The LDH was well over 1,000. Transaminases and alkaline phosphatase were elevated. This is one year ago, so we're talking about uh, roughly January 2008, at which time she was begun on weekly Taxol with Avastin. Avastin every two weeks and Taxol three weeks on and one week off. She had an excellent and has had an excellent response to that treatment, never required transfusions. Hemoglobins had been in the 8s. They're now in the 11 to 12 range. LDH had normalized. Transaminases had normalized. And a PET scan had shown marked regression of disease. She is still virtually asymptomatic. She just celebrated her 50th birthday. She has two young children. They're planning a vacation. 
She retired. She had worked for a pharmaceutical company previously. And what I have noticed in the past two months is really more of a biochemical change in her disease, but not a clinical change in that the LDH is now 1,400 where it was normal. Alkaline phosphatase and transaminases are elevated, and tumor markers have now begun to climb very significantly. She has not become anemic. The last time I did check a haptoglobin, by the way, it's always been low. So there's still some element of a microangiopathic hemolysis, but it has not translated into any anemia at present. Now, how is she doing with the taxol, or how is she doing she with the She has had virtually no neuropathy from the taxol. So the decision in her, and today, this morning, prior to our visit, she had her repeat PET scan. So she actually came theoretically planning to start on her next cycle of therapy. Interestingly, because she just turned 50 and had her birthday, she did not want to know anything about her numbers from the last visit. So she came in expecting that they would be even worse than they were. And when we talked about what the numbers were, she was actually pleased that her 27, 29 didn't increase very much. But I'm concerned. On examination, the only abnormality that is new but barely a problem is that I now can feel just the hepatic edge. And of course, my concern is that there will be a point where I'm going to start to see her hepatic disease come back. There was actually an interesting observation for me uh, looking from the outside in the interaction today between Steve and the patient in that Steve, even before he saw the patient, he was already very concerned that her disease could be progressing today on the basis of the LDH and transaminases. And it's essentially exactly a year since she was started on paclitaxel and bevacizumab. So she's at the medium progression-free survival at 12 months, as was observed in E2100. And he felt that even though she had her PET scan this morning, that she would want to be treated. And he thought she would be very uncomfortable not receiving some treatment. So he initially was willing to allow her to receive her dose of paclitaxel and Bev today and then have the results of the PET scan in a couple of days. But actually, I was impressed how cool she was about all of it. And this is someone who was diagnosed four years ago. She's actually very much focusing on a vacation with their young children over the next couple of weeks. And she was very calm about discussing that, yes, she could be progressing. Yes, there might be a change in treatment. And she wasn't phased at all by it. So I think Steve was perhaps a little bit surprised that she was, was okay actually, not getting yeah. any treatment today. And was she coming with her spouse? Oh, yes, yes. They're both in the pharmaceutical industry. Neither are medical. How old are you? Well, she has one or more children. She has two children, one son, one daughter. Twelve, I think, is the oldest. So what are you thinking about in terms of your next treatment? Well, <laughs> lots of things. Funny I'm not sure there's the right <laughs> answer. I guess the first was, do you continue bevacizumab? Right. Has she had any problems with hypertension? or any, any? She's on a very low dose of an ACE inhibitor and has had no problems with proneuria and at this point has no problems with hypertension. But she developed a little bit of hypertension? A little bit of hypertension, no epistaxis. You know, not to get too far off on the topic, but, you know, that also is compatible with this, you know, sort of side effects thing that we were talking about with the hormones in that, you know, the Indiana group had a paper suggesting that maybe the people who get hypertensive, you know, and have these SNPs might be more likely to benefit. And, of course, it looks like she has had a tremendous benefit. She has. And it's another example. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Right. So what exactly are you thinking about? Uh, well, I, I basically, what I do know is that what scared me about her was the very rapid progression on capecitabine during that period of time. 
as long as I can get insurance coverage, I would hope to continue bevacizumab with whatever chemo I'm giving her, but I do know that it's approved in first-line therapy and not in second at this point, and that we ultimately have to see the ribbon trial and some other trials to know whether, in fact, there will be data to prove that. And in the bright registry in colon cancer, there's at least a suggestion, but of course not in a randomized trial, that bevacizumab beyond progression may be associated with a better outcome, but that's a little bit of leap of faith at this point. And this is one of the thoughts potentially behind the lack of overall survival that was observed on the E2100 trial where patients had to stop bevacizumab upon progression. So even if you saw a progression-free survival benefit, you're not seeing overall survival benefit. And at this point, it is speculation and we need right. more information. But I think the good news for this patient is that, yes, she may be progressing, but actually her disease appears to have changed its trajectory when she had a much more meaningful disease progression before Bev and Paclitaxel. And now she may be progressing, but progressing at a slower pace. And it may be the Bevacizumab, I hope. So the options for her, since she is asymptomatic, she is planning this trip, I have a lot more experience with several other drugs that she could receive. One would be she's never seen an anthracycline. So I thought about liposomal doxorubicin and continuing Avastin with that. I thought about gemcitabine. I also thought about ixabebolone for her on the weekly schedule. But I know in that experience with that drug that neuropathy is a big problem in previously treated patients with taxanes. She's really not had the neuropathy. So I guess I'm going to be guided to some extent by the extent of her disease on PET scan. But I certainly can't judge at this point what drug she's going to respond best to. And I don't think we came out of the discussion She's waiting on Monday for me to give her the answer, but I don't think that Antonio and I are ready to say that there's one right drug to give her. Yeah, I agree with that. And I must admit that even though we have no evidence about the role of continuation of bevacizumab, I think at this point and uh, insurance allowing, I think it's reasonable to continue it for, I would say, one more chemotherapy regimen. And I don't think there is a drug of choice at this point. You know, it's really interesting, Antonio, you know, before the bright tumor registry came out, I think it was at ASCO 07, the clinical investigator community in colorectal cancer was very, very firm about the idea of not continuing bevacizumab. And it was really amazing. And I think that the bright paper just got published with a couple of editorials in the JCO, how over the months after that presentation, you actually saw them change their mind. And we actually could monitor in our mm-hmm. patterns of care studies, first the investigators and then the docs in practice, as Steve was saying, starting to use this strategy, particularly in a patient like this. Of course, we need, we would love to have some randomized trial data. The major concern in regards to continuing or not, I think it reflects our lack of understanding of how bevacizumab works, whether it is truly functioning in a inhibition of blood vessel formation, which may be important in micrometastatic disease in the adjuvant setting, or what may be happening in the metastatic setting where it is essentially just readjusting tumor flow and potentially improving drug delivery. And there is some imaging data Mm -hmm. in colorectal cancer and investigational studies suggesting 
that tumor flow may actually improve with these drugs. And some, I think Judah Folkman has actually had mentioned about his concerns about discontinuing anti-angiogenic therapy and the potential rebound of angiogenic factors. And that, again, theoretically could explain why the results of E2100 as far as overall survival were neutral. There was no improvement. I guess the idea being there that you stop the VEV and maybe there's a rebound VEGF. Yeah, that would be the concern. And all of a sudden, you're losing ground that you may have gained early on. And the final comment, and that's part of my personal comfort level with absolutely no shred of evidence in terms of continuing bevacizumab, at least one more regimen. And that's my kind of a line in the sand, if you will. I mean, this is a drug that appears to work in tumor types that are so varied that have different growth factor pathways of importance in its pathophysiology, I mean, colon, lung, breast, and it seems to work in all of them. And if indeed there is this common mechanism, which is simply related to drug delivery by improving tumor flow, maybe there is something to be learned by the breast cancer community based on this limited data from colorectal cancer. So I would be comfortable with that approach. And it's not a good analogy, but also I think that with the increasing body of evidence in HER2-positive disease, that continuation of some form of anti-HER2 therapy is actually beneficial. I wanted to ask you about that, because initially when we started talking to all these different tumors about this issue of continuation of BEV, particularly in someone who's doing well, everybody would say, oh, well, yeah, in breast cancer, they always do that with trastuzumab, and they were never able to do a phase three study, and you know they're doing all this non-evidence-based medicine. And then lo and behold, at the last ASCO meeting, finally, we had a phase three study reported by Van Mankiewicz, a German study. Can you comment on what they looked at, what they saw there, Antonio? Yeah, so there's always the trouble of the ability to continue anti-HER2 therapy or to randomize patients to continue anti-HER2 therapy or not. And so the German study tested that hypothesis, which was the continuation of chemotherapy with an anti-HER2 therapy versus, at the time of progression, on trastuzumab versus chemotherapy alone. And the clinical benefit was observed in patients who continue on the anti-HER2 therapy. And I think, actually, you can go back a little bit and an analogy of the same data set, perhaps this question might have been answered with actually the registration trial for lapatinib of capecitabine plus minus lapatinib in metastatic breast cancer after progression on trastuzumab, where clearly there was a clinical benefit, a progression-free survival benefit for patients who transitioned from trastuzumab to lapatinib so there are two possibilities for that observation. One is that lapatinib works in patients with HER2-positive disease who now have progressed on trastuzumab. And I think we know that on the basis of the single-agent studies with lapatinib in patients previously treated with trastuzumab. But perhaps another explanation is that continuation of anti-HER2 therapy, in this case switching from trastuzumab to lapatinib, is actually important. And I think the German data by von Minkwix last year reinforces that. The other paper that people talk about when they talk about this idea of continuation of trastuzumab is Joyce O'Shaughnessy's study looking at the combination of trastuzumab and lapatinib. We actually participated in the trial. It was for patients with multiple previous lines of therapy, with HER2-based therapy. 
who were randomized to switch to lapatinib as a single agent or the combination of Herceptin, Trastuzumab, and lapatinib. The thing that was amazing, though, was that these patients had had a lot of trastuzumab, and it was a very late-line study, so you weren't going to see a lot of dramatic benefit. Mm. But in spite of all the trastuzumab they had, as opposed to just switching to lapatinib, which would have been more anti-HER2 therapy, if, in addition, you kept the trastuzumab going, these patients did mm. better. And I think it goes back to something we discussed earlier today, is that it's not too far-fetched to foresee a day in the future where we actually are able to even treat patients, even in the adjuvant setting, potentially just with these forms of targeted therapy with combinations of drugs like these two, and even potentially identify patients who could avoid the toxicities of chemotherapy. 